Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. As you're doing so, let me remind you, we are studying the gospel of Mark. And as we come to this section in Mark, we encounter an issue that was prevalent in the day of Jesus and has also been prevalent in every generation since Jesus. And that's the issue of divorce, marriage in general, and even remarriage. We are... Mission Road Bible Church. And there's a lot of question when I talk to people about what is a Bible church. There's a lot of answers, but the most basic uh, explanation is that we, we take God's word at face value. We take it seriously. We teach through the Bible. Uh, we are teaching through the gospel of Mark, which means that we can't skip any section. And uh, I, I wanna tell you that since we began the gospel of Mark, I have thought, you know, if the rapture comes before Mark 10, I would be okay with that. Because this is such a complicated issue and it also reaches deep into the depths of almost everyone's life or family or a friend that they have. Mark chapter 10. Let me just put the first two verses in our mind and then we'll organize our thoughts around a kind of a systematic approach to this topic. Mark chapter 10 verse 1. Getting up that's in Capernaum, up in Galilee, 100 miles north of, of the Judean area. Getting up, he went from there, that area, to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, trapping him, and began to question him whether it was lawful or biblical for a man to divorce a wife. We've been studying Mark, as I said, and we have come to this 10th chapter of the second book of the New Testament. Mark's been recording the ministry of Jesus up around Galilee, around the lake, 100 miles or so north of where this scene plays out. It's no spoiler alert, I hope, that anyone who knows all four of the Gospels understands that Jesus is going to Jerusalem and will be hung on a Roman cross and killed, right? I trust that is no spoiler alert to anyone. He's going to die on a Roman cross. His death would be real and verified. He would rise from the grave three days later after his torturous, horrific death. And we actually start finding our way through that last week of Jesus' life in the next chapter, in Mark chapter 11. He'll enter into Jerusalem and then we're, for the rest of the chapter, rest of the book rather, studying the last week of the Lord's life. But as we drop into Mark 10, we find Jesus in Perea. Now, that's an important geographical designation. I want to talk to you for a moment about geography because it plays a very important part of this story. Now, as you study the Bible in general and historical narrative in, in particular, First, uh, uh, Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, uh, the four Gospels, the book of Acts, geography plays a silent witness and interpretive aid to so much that's written. Priya if you look at the slide behind me, Perea is an area east of the Jordan River. The Jordan River is in the top there. Just on the other side of that, looking straight east, is Perea. That's where Jesus encounters these Pharisees. Now, that's significant because it's very close, only a few miles from Herod's palaces, which you can see down here in the, in the middle to the right. Literally in the shadow of Herod's palaces, this whole thing plays out. What thing plays out? Well, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They know already that he taught back in the Sermon on the Mount that it was unlawful except for the cause of adultery for anyone to pursue a divorce. This was a couple of years before this incident. This was no secret what Jesus thought about, about divorce, what he taught about marriage. If the Pharisees could get Jesus to play his cards again about divorce, then they could trap him because Herod had been confronted, publicly rebuked by John the Baptist about his unbiblical divorce and his unbiblical remarriage. And 
to thank him for it, Herod beheaded John the Baptist. So you can see what the Pharisees are thinking. If we can, just a few miles from Herod's palaces, get Jesus to pronounce again the same indictment on divorce and remarriage that John the Baptist did, then Herod will take care of our dirty work for us. Their motive is unmistakable. If they could get him to say again publicly in the shadow of Herod's palaces, his complex, divorce is wrong, then surely they could get him executed. What they did not expect, however, is that they would be silenced by Jesus' divine wisdom and understanding of the Mosaic law. No one was a scholar in the Mosaic law like Jesus who wrote it. Matthew records the same event as Mark chapter 10 in Matthew 19, 1 to 12. And that's primarily where we're going to be looking today because Jesus, or rather Matthew, includes a few details that Mark does not. Now, the detail is known as the exception clause. No one can get a divorce except, that's the exception, for something. And we'll look into deeply what that means in a minute. Matthew includes one and only one exception to God's forbidding of divorce. And we need to explore what that means as we put all this together and get a comprehensive understanding of Jesus' teaching on divorce, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. By the way, it's often the case in the gospel writers when they report events that they add some events that the, uh, that the others don't. That's not a contradiction at all. It's, it's, it's rather a corroboration. If all of us saw the same things, we would emphasize different things in our recounting of that. Same was true of the four gospel writers, but they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to emphasize and remember and to record exactly what he wanted them to record. So as the documents, the inspired documents come together in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit intended for Mark to say what he said and Matthew to say what he said and Luke, in one verse, by the way, to say what he said about this subject. Now, as we begin, a few pastoral comments are, are necessary. Many people come to understand God's view of divorce and remarriage long after a divorce long after remarriage. And if that's the case with you or anyone who may be listening to this recording in the future, can I just encourage you, sneaking ahead to next week, Paul says, remain as you are. In other words, it's never right to do wrong to do right. A second divorce doesn't absolve the situation and make it, make it better. It's never right to do wrong to do right so if that's the case, listen, this week and next week, I would beg you to come. It's just like last week. There's going to be a bit of a cliffhanger on this week as well because we're gonna summarize Jesus' teaching on divorce. Next week, we're gonna look at Paul's teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And we have to collate those together, but we need to get the full orbed teaching of Jesus before we leave the gospels. Also, just like last week, many of you are gonna have questions. Yes, but, and what if I have the same questions? And we are going to try to answer those as thoroughly as we can next week. But please don't hesitate ever to seek out one of our pastors or elders to help you work through any of your own personal situation, your own personal questions. This is such a complicated issue. It's impossible to to forecast and to predict every nuance of everyone's situation. We know you're here. We love you. We care for you. Nothing in the passage about divorce and remarriage here or in 1 Corinthians says that it is an unpardonable sin. There's a passage for that, and it's not this sin. So there's grace, but for those of us who are married, there ought to be an encouragement that we should dive into our marriages with full obedience and love and that there's never a back door. If you are not married, this should be both instructive and a warning to all of us to think about marriage and the covenant that comes with marriage correctly. I know that we have brothers and sisters in our church who are divorced, some remarried, all with a unique story 
And no, there's no way in this sermon series to prepare for every nuance. So please, just let's, let's take Jesus as our Lord and Savior at face value, hear what he's saying, what he's teaching, and then find the implications afterwards. Before anyone hears the words of the Lord and concludes that he is too strong, and it's very likely after we collate Jesus' teaching on divorce, you're gonna say, whoa, that's heavy. That, that is way more strict and stronger than I would ever want to say or hear. Can I remind you that it was that way in the original hearer's ears as well? So much so that the disciples concluded in Matthew 19, 10, they said to the, Lord, to the Lord, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, is so serious, it's better not to get married. And the point is they understood how strict Jesus was being about the covenant of marriage, how serious he was being. And they said, if that's the case, it might be good not to ever make that commitment in the first place. Well, for our study this time, as I said, we're going to summarize and systematize what Jesus taught about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We're gonna summarize what we did last week. So a lot of these points we're, we're going to go pretty fast over. And so since we've, since we've already studied Mark 10, we're gonna focus most of our attention on Matthew chapter 19. You can turn over there if you will, Matthew 19. It's a summary of Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Please notice it is a summary of what he's doing. Full disclosure, I have 11 points, but they're the Lord's and not mine. So we're gonna go fast, but full disclosure, one of them is gonna take the majority of our time today, okay? So just know that most of this we covered last week in Mark, we're just gonna collate it all together, putting Matthew and Mark and Luke's accounts together. The first, when we're looking at this summary of Jesus' teaching, number one, all beliefs about marriage and divorce and remarriage must be regulated by Scripture. The Bible has to be our first and final authority on what we believe about the covenant of marriage, the breaking of that covenant in a divorce, and whether or not it's appropriate and biblical to remarry. In Matthew 5, just listen, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. The point is he's looking back to it was said, looking to Moses. In Matthew 19, verse four, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? He's sourcing his theology in Moses. And then last week we learned in Mark 10, he answered and said to the Pharisees, what did Moses command you? Jesus went to, the Mo to Moses in the law. Moses was often a, a shorthand for the five books of Moses, the law of God. We can expand that out and say, what does God's word say? To find wisdom and authority for this sticky issue, we have to say, what does the Bible say about this? Not what do our feelings or our intuitions say. We can add to what Jesus points to in Moses, the rest of the Old Testament and the whole of the New Testament. Jesus isolates Moses because they were trying to leverage Moses against Jesus to make their point. What's important is that we find what we believe about marriage and divorce and Remarriage from God's words, not our situations, not our feelings, not our pasts, not our desires, and certainly not even the advice of a caring friend. What does God's word say about that? And I know we have yes, but, and what if, but the answers to those questions must come from God's word for a believer. I find that for so many things, it's not that we don't understand what God says, it's that we don't like what God says. So when we come to God's word, let's ask, is our opposition or our pushback against that based on how we feel? Is it based on our intuition? Or are we taking God at face value? May God give us all submissive and obedient hearts that are tuned to his divine truth. Number two, marriage is a covenant 
of divine origin. It's a covenant, a promise, a relationship between a husband and wife, and it was created by God in heaven, Matthew 19, 6. The two, after they come together, are no longer two, but now in marriage they are one flesh. What therefore, look at this, God has joined together. You see that? God has joined together. Let no one, no man, no husband, no wife, no judge, no jury, no divorce court ever separate. Mark says the same thing in Mark 10, 9. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus' commentary here is important. His command for no man to separate, meaning to divorce, is grounded in the fact that God is the one who joins a couple in marriage. He's saying that this marriage covenant, this commitment between a husband and wife is a divinely, sovereignly put together, sovereignly generated relationship that he himself ordained. Listen, I fell in love with Kim. I told you last week, the first time I saw her, I felt like the, there was nothing, no sound except this wonderful violin music. She was floating. And I, I mean, I, I, I loved her. She, she took my heart. But I know now that God allowed us to be born in the same time, to go to the same church, to be involved in the same ministry, to introduce each other. It, all of that was divine providence that brought us together. The point Jesus is making here is that marriage is a commitment, a promise, a covenant that he takes seriously because he was involved in bringing the two together. Wow, just if you're married, take some time with your wife, with your husband, and count the thousands of providences that God arranged to put you and your spouse together, even to bring you to meet one another. I know what some are thinking, but Rick, what if I made a mistake getting married to someone? Was God still involved in that mistake? Does God allow a mulligan, a do-over, a reset? We're gonna give full answer to that next week because Paul speaks to that directly. But let's just say now that what God has joined together, Jesus said, let no one separate it. There is grace for difficult marriages. There is grace for broken hearts. There is grace for difficult situations. But Jesus says divorce is not that option you should choose. By the way, for you singles, make sure you're making the wisest decision about whom you will date and marry with lots of counsel, lots of input from godly sources in your life. Because when you say, I do, you need to keep that promise. Number three, more on that next week. Marriage is heterosexual and monogamous. This should go without saying, but I have to say it in our day and age. It is a man and a woman, and it is monogamous. Matthew 19, verses four to six. Jesus answered and said, have you not read that he who created them, God, from the beginning, made them male and female? I cannot suspend my, my judgment that God, in his infinite wisdom, writing this thousands of years ago, giving this to Moses, knew that you and I would need this verse as we see the transgender and the homosexual movement trying to re-engineer and redefine marriage outside of what God has said. He could not have been clear. He made them male and female. Mark says the same things in verses six to eight. God created the first two people in the world and they were made for each other. Adam, a man, and Eve, a woman. A male and a female. From the beginning of creation, Jesus says, God made them male and female. That is an accent. That is theologically spiking the ball on purpose so that we know that the design of manhood and womanhood was from the beginning and they were intended to come together in a way that, that no other relationship can be as close as on this planet the divine blueprint then for marriage is one man and one woman 
committed to each other for life, monogamous for life. That's his divine blueprint. That's his divine plan. That brings us to number four. Marriage creates, this is still review from Mark. Marriage creates a one flesh permanent union. Back to Matthew 19. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They come together and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. As we noted last week, the divine arithmetic in marriage is one plus one equals one. It's a one flesh relationship, physically one flesh through sexual intimacy, emotionally one flesh. I don't think without the consideration of my wife, neither should she without her husband, and is spiritually one flesh. Paul will instruct us in Ephesians 5 that the relationship that we have with each other actually has gospel example and gospel implications, gospel application. It's a one flesh permanent union. The two become one. In other words, they are indivisible. One of the things that many people do in a, in a wedding ceremony is two candles light one and then you blow the both out. They, you can no longer distinguish the two fl uh, flames. I've seen people put, put you know, black sand and white sand together in a vase. You can't go back and undo that. That's the idea. They're one flesh permanently bound one to the other. Something new is created in marriage. And when a married couple come together, it is a creation by God that he does not intend to be trifled with. Number five, told you we'd go fast. God forbids divorce. This is Jesus' teaching. God forbids divorce. As we've read already in Matthew 19, 6, let no man, no person, separate what God has joined together. The man here is anyone who would pursue a divorce and try to undo what God has done in the one flesh union let no man separate or divorce. Jesus is saying very clear that a divorce is a declaration. Listen, divorce is a declaration of cosmic war against God himself. That's what Jesus is saying. What God has done, no man should try to undo. Do you see that? Therefore, divorce is cosmic war against God. It's that serious. Number six. And these next two is where we'll do a deep dive. Divorce is only tolerated because of people's hardness of heart. Divorce is only tolerated or permitted. The Greek word can mean tolerated or permitted because of people's hardness of heart. Both Matthew 19 and Mark 10 record this. Matthew 19, 8, Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. This was a provision. It was never God's intention in the Garden of Eden to have this provision, but God's grace provided it. Both Mark and Matthew record Jesus placing the source of divine, uh, the source of divorce, rather, squarely on the hardness of people's hearts. Wh whose heart is hard? Well, it's... It's not really descriptive there. It could be the hardness of, of heart for someone not to forgive someone who's even given grounds for divorce, as we'll see in the next point. It could be the hardness of heart for someone not repenting from sexual sin. But he's making the point that the provision for divorce, the toleration that God gives for some divorce is because of man's hardness of heart. As we'll see in the next point, I think it most likely refers to the heart that is unrepentant after committing sexual sin, someone who has sinned against his or her spouse sexually and will not or has not or has no intention of repenting. That brings us to Jesus' teaching that we did not encounter last week in Mark. He doesn't include it, but Matthew does twice in the Sermon on the Mount and here in Matthew 19. Almost everything we've done so far is just simply review. 
But now we come to number seven, and this is where we will spend the bulk of our time. Everything else will go fast. Please don't panic. I'm the only one allowed to do that. Number seven, Jesus' only provision for divorce was sexual immorality. Jesus only, his only provision for divorce was sexual immorality. We see this in Matthew 5.32 and in Matthew 19.6. When he was teaching two years earlier in the Sermon on the Mount up near the Capernaum area, the, the crowds that gathered, he's teaching them God's uh, heart and uh, it's behind all of the regulations, all of the commands. And that's where he says in Matthew 5.32, everyone who divorces his wife except, except, for the reason of unchastity, sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, you could say, himself. Now here in Matthew 19, he says, I say to you, repeating that which the Pharisees had heard, were obviously trying to trap him and saying again, and he says it. I love the fact that Jesus says, you want to trap me in what I've said that I believe? I will tell you again what I've said and what I believe. Whoever divorces his wife, Matthew 19, 9, except for immorality. Same word translated unchastity in Matthew 5 and translated immorality here in verse 9. Marries another woman and he commits adultery. In the discussions and debates about divorce, this has come to be known as the exception clause. There's no divorce except, except for one reason. That's why we call it the exception clause. And remember, in Deuteronomy 24, which is really the heart of what the Pharisees are arguing with, with Jesus about, Moses condemns any kind of frivolous divorce for any cause, which is what the Pharisees were doing very regularly. There is only one exception as a possibility for divorce, Jesus says. And that exception is here and in Matthew 5.32. And is that, that is that your spouse has committed sexual immorality. I would even add that's unrepentant. The New American Standard translates this Greek term used as immorality. Uh, immorality here and as I said, unchastity in Matthew 5. Jesus affirms that there is one sin that is so serious it violates the one flesh relationship that unifies marriage that pulls them together in God's mind and it gives the faithful spouse grounds to dissolve that union. What is the grounds for that? Let me just tell you, if you will do some study on this, you will find many trees have been killed printing what people think this is. But I... I'm not being arrogant. I just think if we take it at face value, it's not as difficult to understand as, as one might propose. It's the word porneia. Does that sound familiar? Porneia. Porneia. Please know that modern day pornography came from this word. This word didn't come from the understanding of modern day pornography. So make sure you get the polarity of those, those uh, semantic connections in the right direction. If you study this issue, you're likely gonna come a, 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 along a few views about what porneia is and what porneia isn't. Some people think it's sex before marriage. Well, that's a nice idea, except you don't divorce people you're not married to, so it's probably not that. And then they say, well, no, this is talking about people who are betrothed, they're engaged. Well. I think if that were the case, Jesus would have used other words for engagement and betrothal and not marriage and divorce. So I don't think that's the best way of looking at that. Thinking that these passages are about breaking up an engagement has a serious problem because Matthew 19 directly addresses grounds for divorce and remarriage verbatim. So if you hear that view, people who, some people who hold that view are very godly men and women, but I... I just don't think it holds exegetical consistency. Add to this the fact that Jesus is referencing Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Deuteronomy 24, which clearly refer to marriage. That's the debate source. 
So Jesus is condemning the actions of those who unbiblically or unlawfully abandon their wives and enter into new marriages. That's the source of the discussion with the Pharisees. This term porneia is actually a broad and general word for sexual immorality. It includes in, in biblical and ancient Greek literature, it includes descriptions about adultery, infidelity, homosexuality, incest, and a variety of other, listen, sexual sins, but they are all sexual. They're not emotional. They're not financial. They're not uh, familial. You don't like the mother-in-law. These are all related to one of the marriage partners being unfaithfully, unfaithful in a sexual dimension. I think its meaning is more precisely determined by the context in which it's found as are most words. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 8, the term is used to refer uh, to both sexual sin in marriage and outside marriage. You can be sexually immoral or sexually unfaithful whether you are married or not. So just kind of backing up, this word porneia encompasses all sexual evil, including adultery, and it's how Christ is using it here in our text about adultery, sexual sin by a married person. That is the only grounds Jesus gives for the certificate of divorce that's being cited by the Pharisees. It's adultery. It's the only sin that could break the marriage covenant because according to God's law, it resulted in, get this, Death. The law tells us that if a, Leviticus 20.10, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. So if you look at it from Jesus' pure divine perspective, this shouldn't even be a discussion Footnote, we have no historical evidence that Israel ever followed through on this command. I know there's the situation in that uh, a spurious text in John 8 where they were about to stone a woman. But if you look at the Old Testament, there was no historical precedent where they were habitually obeying Leviticus 20 and saying, and, and by the way, that would have solved everything, right? If the adulterous spouse was executed, remarriage after death was, uh, was okayed by the Old and the New Covenant, the New Testament. However, however, please take note that the Bible nowhere commands that the offended party the victim, if we could call them that, the one who did not commit sexual sin, nowhere does the Bible command that a divorce must take place after that. The point here is that divorce is, is only an option, but it's not the only option. You say, where do you get the only option of working things out after, after sexual sin? Have you read the book of Hosea? Hosea loses his wife who becomes a harlot. Hosea 2, verse 2, so I brought, bought her for myself. Then I said to her, you, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will be, I'll also be toward you. Hosea brought back his adulterous wife who had left him, become a harlot, become a prostitute. Yes, it's a picture of God's wooing Israel back, but not before it was a real situation where Hosea saw his adulterous wife and instead of saying, I want to divorce you, I have lawful biblical grounds, he first said, I want to restore our marriage. Listen, adultery does not have to destroy and dissolve a marriage. Sexual sin does not have to dissolve and destroy a marriage. It is possible for a marriage to recover from it. So before we get into the exception, can we at least reference the fact that God's grace can, can superintend and overshadow any and every sin? Then why is divorce permitted? Good question. 
I think the answer is in the term hardness of heart, which leans me toward the interpretation that hardness of heart means the adultery is unrepented of. The offending adulterer, the offending sexual offender will not repent. Their heart's hard. They won't be wooed back to repentance. If the sinning spouse is repentant, adultery does not have to destroy a marriage. Forgiveness, restoration, always possibilities. But God here allows for divorce to be an option to something as devastating as adultery. And doesn't say reenact the death penalty, which he could have said. Why? God's grace. God's grace is drenched over all this passage. Even in the Old Testament, we find God's grace displayed in the gradual transition from that death penalty to the allowance of the certificate of divorce instead. We see David committed adultery. He was not put to death. God was gracious. And what about Solomon? Can I remind you of 1 Kings 10.3? He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 other women, concubines. Don't you think there was possibility that there was some adultery happening somewhere in there? And God doesn't kill him. He doesn't enact the death penalty on him. Eventually, under the New Covenant, under the New Testament, the death penalty was completely done away with and only divorce remained as an option for an unrepentant, hardened heart pursuing sexual sin while still remaining married. John Murray, great theologian, says this. Jesus abolished the Mosaic penalty for adultery and he legitimated Divorce for adultery. So it brings us to the question as to the legitimacy of a remarriage after the divorce, right? Now, my perspective and that of many who I respect is that marriage is possible. We're gonna look at that next week because God has graciously replaced the death penalty with the allowance of divorce, but it's not always the best, wisest first option. We'll preview for next week. If a sinning spouse has remained unrepentant, if a divorce has happened, but the sinning spouse has not remarried, nor have they died, the possibility of rejoining that union should be one of the highest priorities in considering what's next. But as 1 Corinthians 7 will tell us, it's not the only priority to consider. Cliffhanger, we're going to deal with Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 next week, okay? We're just talking about the Lord Jesus today. Under the new covenant, the faithful spouse, I think, is free to remarry under certain conditions. It would make no sense for God to be gracious to the adulterer by sparing his life and yet demand the faithful party a faithful person in the marriage to remain alone and miserable as well. But again, Paul will help us next week. The Westminster Confession, by the way, a great doctrinal uh, collection, reasons that the innocent party is free to remarry as if the offending party were dead. And again, we're gonna look at that more with Paul Next week. I think that's what every preacher says when they get to an uncomfortable part. We'll talk about that next week. <clears throat> but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 27 and 28 will be where we drill down next week. The point is, Jesus is saying there is no exception for divorce except that your spouse has been sexually unfaithful and sexually immoral. There is no other reason he gives. Which brings us to number eight. It's a little bit of a logical flow here. Number eight, 
People will endeavor to justify unbiblical divorces. This is where we started last week in Mark chapter 10. People will endeavor to justify unbiblical divorces. Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee, came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. We saw that map earlier. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? We know from the Hillel school that we studied last week that the practice of these Pharisees was that you could divorce your wife for, for anything. Anything that bothers you. Burning the dinner. Finding someone prettier. Being late somewhere. Not liking the way she looked at you. They were trying to justify divorce for whatever they desired. Jesus says that is not in play. There's only one exceptional clause for divorce, and that is sexual immorality. You cannot say any other reason and it be legitimate. Now, in the context of Mark 10 and Mark 19, there's there's an attempt to trap our Lord. They were unashamedly trying to justify and explain away and even give biblical allowance for their unbiblical divorces. It's the default of the human heart. I get that. I'm not even critical of that. I know that when I sin, it's the nature of my heart to begin to justify the reasons that I could sin in that way and to get myself off the hook. But when you begin creating doctrines and interpretations of Scripture that you start teaching other people, the Pharisees did, this is a way that you can disobey the Scripture in a way that you can twist the Scripture and use it against it. That's a problem. Much more from Paul when? Next week. Number nine, remarriage must be regulated by Scripture, right? Marriage and divorce must be regulated by Scripture. So should remarriage. And again, Paul will deal with this more intently next week. But in Mark chapter uh, 10, 3 and uh, uh, following, and then in Matthew 19, he picks up in verse 7. They said to him, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. By the way, Moses did not command that. They had twisted the scriptures to say that. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning, it was not this way. And I say, whoever divorces his wife, this is where the disciples say, this is hard stuff, Jesus. Except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The debate, again, is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. You can go back and listen to the sermon last week. We dealt with it in in detail. But in verse 1, Deuteronomy 24, Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, a sexual uh, deviance in her, He can write her a certificate of divorce. They had twisted that to say if he finds anything he dislikes in her, then he can divorce her. We're incompatible. Not a legitimate excuse. Remember, Jesus is debating on what the meaning of Deuteronomy 24 is. Pharisees have misinterpreted, misimplied, taking verse one to mean that they could find any cause, any reason to leave their spouse, their, their wives. And as a footnote, we, we noticed last week that nowhere in Judaism, ancient Judaism, was the wife allowed to divorce her husband, only the husband, her, his wife. Just, I gave you this last week. Some reasons that we find in the first century that Pharisees were divorcing their wives. Burning dinner, putting too much salt in the food, speaking to older, other men, Refusing her husband's control, saying something unkind about her mother-in-law, being infertile, producing no male son, finding someone prettier. These were reasons that the Pharisees said it's okay to divorce over these. That was not the case in Deuteronomy 24. And again, there's no command in Deuteronomy 24 that they said there is a command there. Boy, just a great reminder hermeneutically that we need to say what the Bible says, all the Bible says, and what? 
know more than what the Bible says. Nowhere in the Mosaic law is there a command to divorce that the Pharisees were trying to cite. Deuteronomy 24 is actually speaking to the rights of a wife after divorce and what was to happen if there were a remarriage. And without getting into the details of that, just know that remarriage was regulated by God's word. That was the Older Testament, 1 Corinthians 7. As we'll see next week, we'll talk about that in our context. They did what so many do with the Bible today. They found a detail in the text changed its meaning, amplified its implications to their own liking, and then taught it as truth and doctrine. Wow. Be careful. They didn't understand that the certificate of divorce was a provision for sin, not a get-out-of-marriage card. We are so often witnessing the same problem today, Jesus addressing the same problem Jesus is addressing in this text. Number 10. We've covered these last two, this last one. Number 10, rather, last week, so we don't need to deal with it much. Divorce and remarriage have traumatically serious consequences. Divorce and remarriage have traumatically serious consequences. What are those consequences? Well, Matthew 5.32 says this, and Matthew 19.9 say this that whoever divorces his wife except for the cause of adultery, immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. You make yourself and the one you marry adulterers. The point is simple because sexual intimacy brings about a one flesh union. To come together with someone after an unbiblical divorce is to try to create another one flesh reunion which is out of God's boundaries. Push pause. Nowhere... In this passage, does Jesus say that these are unpardonable sins? He does talk in Luke 11 about an unforgivable sin. And if you want to know what that is, it's, it's saying that Jesus, claiming that Jesus did his miracles and his teaching by the power of the devil. That's the unforgivable sin. And if you believe that and you die believing that, there is no way you can be forgiven. It can't be forgiven, right? It's a self-verifying sin that 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 condemns the person who says that there is no provision for sin, which is Jesus, because you don't believe he is who he says he is. Nowhere in this passage does it say if you've committed adultery, if you've had an unbiblical marriage or a remarriage, nowhere does it say you have now committed the unpardonable sin and you are forever condemned. There is grace for these sins. There is forgiveness to be had by seeking it for these sins. But what does repentance look like even after a remarriage? Let's say that you, you come to the conclusion that your, marriage, your, your divorce was not biblical according to Jesus' words and that your remarriage was obviously not gonna be biblical according to Paul's teaching. We'll say more as I said next week, but for now, let me say that the the tense of the verbs does not indicate that this is ongoing adultery, but I think the first time. And then there's grace to remain as you are. A second divorce will not undo or fix the situation. So if I can reach ahead, I would say stay where you are and let's pursue God's grace from here forward. It's never right to do wrong to do right. And then lastly, this is not in the passages in Mark 10 or Matthew 19 or in Luke 16. Luke has one phrase that's repeated by Mark. That's why we didn't go there. Marriage is not eternal, number 11. Marriage is not eternal. In a debate with the Sadducees, uh, they were saying, trying to trap Jesus with another uh, uh, um, uh, trap, uh, they said to him in Matthew 22, Teacher, Moses uh, said, If any man dies having no children, his brother is his next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up the children for his brother. Now, let's say there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died, having no children, left his wife for his brother. And also the second and the third, up to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. Listen to what they say. So they get to heaven in the resurrection. 
Listen, it's just so devious. Whose wife of the seven shall she be? She had seven. Who's her husband forever in heaven? Jesus says, you're mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels unmarried in heaven. Jesus intends for us to keep marriage in perspective. It is not eternal. It's just a part of our earthly pilgrimage. It will come to an end. And as much as I want to think that I will get to heaven and find a cloud behind which Kim and I can go and I can kiss her sweet lips, (laughs) probably not gonna happen. But I'll have a perfect mind then and I'll be okay with that. No marriage in heaven. That's important. Jesus taught us to think about marriage in the proper perspective and Paul will inform us that marriage is to be a reflection of gospel truth and an application of the gospel in how we treat one another. What a grace. Again, divorce, as I said last week, at the rate of 50% is, I think, I truly believe, the most destructive force in our society. And as a son of divorced parents, I can testify to the damage that follows after one. Malachi 2.16, God said, I hate divorce. He hates it. He gave a provision for it in the case of sexual sin and immorality, but he hates it. This should ramp all of our expectations on ourselves as married couples up to think better and more deeply and more faithfully about our wives, our husbands, 